think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 42 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 43rd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I hate introducing myself. Yeah? Yeah. Well, we didn't used to do it. Um, it's in Rainville. Sorry. Uh, and this week, um, it's, it's a parliamentary break week, so, you know, the, the, the speed of things has, has relaxed a little bit. We're sort of in the post-budget doldrums uh, in terms of federal politics. So, you know, still some items of note. Though, of course, um, provincial politics is a little more exciting here in Ontario right now. It has and it got a whole lot more exciting on Sunday. It has been lately. Uh, so, actually, let's just let's jump right in there. Let's jump right into the province. I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah, sorry. What, what province are we talking We're about? We're talking about the province of Ontario. And, oh, yeah. Uh, the election of uh, one Douglas Ford. I don't know if Douglas is his full name. To um, <laughs> the leadership of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Yes. Um, not without complication, not without, you know, confusion. Um, but we're on the other side of that. And uh, Doug Ford reigns supreme. He does. Um, so for those of you who, who didn't follow the, the sort of saga on Sunday, uh, it emerged that things were very close, followed by the discovery that it was, in fact, very, very close. And Within half a percentage point, I believe. Yes, uh, popular vote-wise. Yes, and came down to only about 130 points, I believe. How many how many points were there total? Um, writings times 100. How many writings are there in Ontario? I think 100. No, I'm sorry. Uh, 80 something, 90 something. I actually don't know. I don't know either. I don't do provincial politics. Yeah, I don't really either. Uh, I know Quebec is 125, and I think uh, Ontario is actually moving up to 125. It might be 121, which is the same as the federal. It yes, is, I it think is. it is. It is yeah, it, it matches. It the is federal. 121. Yeah. Okay, so at any rate, a lot of points. You can um, tell we well research our topics yes, before. <laughs> indeed. Um, well, that was kind of like some factoid there. That, that was pretty well factoid territory. Uh, at any rate, so it came down to this this uh, very, very small amount of points using the same leadership system that the uh, Federal Conservative Party does, or at least something very close to it, yeah. where each writing is allocated 100 points. You get points based on your per, uh, percentage of the vote per writing. So Christine Elliott actually managed to win the popular vote and win a majority of writings, but Doug Ford won his writings by more than Christine Elliott did, which put him over the top on points. Correct. Um, there was some controversy because there were about 1,500 votes that had been assigned either to no writing or to the wrong writing, I believe. I think it started with around 3,000 votes, and as the, I guess, auditors, let's say, auditors and scrutineers and lawyers were going through them, they whittled that number down through sort of subsequent rounds to less and less until it was something like 140 votes left. Yeah. At which point it was deemed statistically inconsequential and... I think they went ahead and basically called it and then yes. maybe dealt with those votes a little later. Yeah, and I think uh, Christiana was mulling, sort of taking it to court, and then decided not to. Uh, it, it, I think it's worth saying for any sort of like contested process with this, the longer it goes on, the worse it is for the party in terms of optics. And with the party as the supposedly neutral arbiter of this, they kind of have a stake in calling it done as soon as possible. Which, you know, in the interest of, like, a full accounting of exactly, you know, what went down is not great. Uh, yeah. But the party sort of puts expedience first in these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, the the obvious parallel, I, I mean, the most obvious parallel, let's say, is to, you know, Florida, uh, Bush-Gore situation, Florida, the hanging chads. And a lot of sort of political strategists will talk about the situation there and the push, uh, the PR push that followed. And you saw a little bit of that in Ontario as well uh, to brand a winner. Yes. When a winner is still in flux. Yeah. And so if you have, you know, to continue with the United States example, if you have Bush claiming victory and the papers running victory, it becomes very hard to backtrack on that. Yeah, it does. Um, and the same was sort of true with the Doug Ford situation where you had I, I don't have the full timeline in front of me but I imagine this was sort of a uh, a play by the part or by the Ford campaign was when indications seem to be that you're winning but there's still some odds and ends being contested it's to go out and claim victory no matter what yeah because I mean like what's the what's the like calculus here it's that either you do that and the sort of like tide of inevitability kind of rolls your way even in a very tight situation and that sort of you take the edge or you lose on points 
And, like, people are like, huh, it's weird that he did that. But, like, what's the downside? Yeah. Like, you have a real incentive to do this. Yeah. Just go out, claim victory as soon as, you know, as soon as reasonable. Yeah. Um, Not before that. But if there's a couple hundred votes that are being recounted and retabulated, you don't don't necessarily have to be the most... uh, gracious in waiting for it so to zoom out a little bit from that i want to talk a little bit about kind of how the race unfolded at the end so um i think it was initially reported that caroline mulroney had come in fourth though that turned out not to be true correct um tanya granick allen the like hyper conservative i think she got about 15 percent of the points where mulroney got 17 yeah so fairly close nonetheless yeah so i mean tanya granick allen ran as a sort of like party democracy and uh, anti-sex ed or anti-changes to the sex ed curriculum to be fair uh, sort of candidate also anti-carbon tax and pro-ripping uh, wind turbines out of the ground uh, <laughs> a couple other interesting positions but at any rate uh, fair to say she was a genuine issues candidate that I think spoke to real yearnings in the party to to move in a certain policy direction and that's totally fine Um Carolyn Mulroney, I think it's more interesting to see where this sort of lands her. Because she sort of came more or less out of nowhere, I mean, you know, as, as out of nowhere as the daughter of a prime minister can uh, to do this. And it seems to have gone over like a lead balloon. Uh, like, I think it's probably fair to say she underperformed. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, Considering I would... especially <clears throat> the fundraising she did. Yes, I would agree. On on fundraising, uh, she raised something like $800,000, which is... A lot of money. And it's actually an insane amount in context. Yeah. Um, particularly compared to her competitors who raised somewhere along the lines of... Like 30% of that, I think. Uh, I think less than that. I, yeah. think I think everyone else was in the hundred dollars to $200,000 yeah. range. Which is kind of like where people ended up in the NDP leadership race after about... At the halfway mark after almost, you, almost a year yeah, there's a nas- national leadership race by the summer roughly uh as opposed to a like three-week leadership contest there's a lot of money floating around so in, wait in let, let me do some napkin calculation here. go ahead let, let's say that the average vote how many do we know how many votes Mulroney got um first couple, round votes couple thousand i don't remember exactly how many like how, how many thousand like i don't know damn so i think something like six I'd love to, okay, I'll, I'll leave it at this. I'd love to see the numbers on this. Um, but presuming an average donation to her, let, let's be generous of like $1,000. I assume, frankly, I, given how many votes she got, that like 80% of her fundraising was people, <laughs> was friends of her dad giving the max. Or, to be fair, associates of her or her husband's. But also, I'm just saying, those because of just the sheer amount she raised, mm-hmm. like a substantial amount of her votes, course, like... It'd be something like 5% of her voters would have donated, like, effectively the max amount or, like, above $800 to her campaign if if they, in fact, uh, voted for her at the end of all of this. Yeah. There's there's just a really high correlation between the amount of money she got and how few voters she had. Yes. The, the crossover there has to be huge. Yes, I would imagine so. <laughs> Ridiculously so. Um, yeah, so that sort of covers the two, the two like, really also-rans. Uh, Christine Elliott, uh, who had sort of had a, you know, interesting arc of running for the leadership in the last leadership race against Patrick Brown, losing, resigning as an MPP and taking up a patronage appointment uh, from the Wynn government. It's a patronage if you're well, not on their team. Okay. It's a political appointment. Sure. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. Now that's, that's fair. That's more fair. Uh, a political appointment on... Um, Patient, from, patience ombudsman. Yes, which is, you know, like I think a role where you can be critical of the government and ombudspeople do do good work. Yeah, I think it's a very reasonable role. A lot of ombudsmen yes. have been uh, very critical. Yes. There, there was, in fact, a, a federal NDP candidate who was an ombudsman of sorts, if I if I recollect. Uh, you recollect that correctly. Uh, and he he had a real gorilla... <laughs> gorilla attitude. Gorilla leadership attitude. Um, yeah, so... She, I think, was probably not helped by taking that job. So, Given the, the depths of the anti-win feeling in the PC party right now. So, I mean, absolutely. And, the, I mean, the fact is, when you're looking at such a close race, 
on any factor looks decisive. Yes. Yeah, and the same thing with like the Clinton Trump thing, where like anything looks like it tipped the balance. Yeah, you what, can make a plausible case for anything. Was it from, this? Like, was it this? Was it the fact that she was a woman? Was yeah. it the fact that she took this position? Was she it, didn't go to Wisconsin? Was it Russia? Like it's like it's a whole yeah whack of things. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's obviously very easy to play quarterback the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a unconventional campaign to be sure. Um, so in such a compressed time frame, I think errors and decisions were certainly magnified. Yeah. Um, because you have you less know, time to convince people to forgive you. Yeah. yeah. And o- over the time, uh, over a longer campaign, I think your error, like small errors of, you know, whether or not to spend your money on this form of advertising or that yeah, sort of even out, even out more so than they do. And this was what, like a three week campaign, something yeah. ridiculously short. Yes. I barely got my membership. And registered in Many time, to, didn't, in time, in, to, in time which, to vote, which is another controversy, right? Like that. it was. Yeah. So, from my personal experience, I uh, signed up as a PC to be part of the PC party because I hadn't yet been um, on the last day uh, of memberships. I got my letter in the mail about a week later, um, whilst uh, signups were ongoing. I filled in my information, I sent off a picture of my card, I got an email about 24 hours later, I used the email and all the information. Admittedly, the process was, you know, a little complex and a little confusing and certainly would have uh, been a hindrance to seniors or anyone who was not technically uh, literate. Um, but in my experience, everything went exactly as it should have. Yeah. Um, as a, you know, new member to the party. So yeah. Okay. I, I, I can speak well in that regard. Sure. I think yeah, I'm possibly part of the thing that worked well too is like as you say, you're you know technically proficient, live in a you know reasonably major city, so yeah. The the process itself in terms of you had to take so you got this code in the mail, um, like a twelve digit serial number sort of thing, and you had to take that online. You had to upload a picture of a piece of ID, two either two pieces of non photo ID or a photo ID. You sent that, someone would presumably, with a whole bunch of other, your uh, postal code, your address, that sort of information, your your mailing address. Yeah. And then someone would verify that, send you back another code, and then you had to go on a website, (laughs) put put in the first code, get the second code, take both codes, go to your ballot, then do that. Like, it it was fairly rigorous. Yeah. Um, But here we are. Okay. I, I made it through. So, uh, with that, with the ballots all counted, with the the Alsorans accounted for, we are left with Doug Ford. Yay! So I'll ask you. You're gonna, gonna interview. How are how are you? In- interview me here. How are you feeling? The, how am I feeling? Um, I certainly wish uh, Christine Elliott was the candidate. Kitiana, are 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 you a cuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's um. Yeah. I do wish Christine Elliott was the candidate. Um, I think Doug Ford... Uh... Has interesting views on things. <laughs> has a winning personality. Like, what's the what's the big hang-up here? Uh, I mean, he certainly has a... I, I, let's, let's not beat around the bush here. I think the obvious comparison and the, the tired comparison that everyone makes is to Ford... Or sorry, not to Ford. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean that is, I mean, is to Gerald Ford actually <laughs> coming out of nowhere. It's the Gerald Ford comparison. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the Rob Ford comparison certainly. Well, the Rob Ford or the Trump, um, but that's all obviously becoming a bit of a trope. Yes, a pretty lazy um, one. And yeah, so I mean, there are, you know, certainly parallels, particularly in terms of demeanor and. Well, and kind interview of how, style yeah, and, and things how he like says that. he's going to fix things. He's like, I've run a business. I'm so good at business. Business, business, elites, business. elites. Uh, so some of those big themes. Yeah. Um, I obviously have my own uh, hesitations with the Trump campaign, which are fairly significant, uh, and Trump is putting as, it as president <laughs> that are fairly significant. Um, I think there are certainly problems uh, if he does become elected. That will be interesting to see sorted out. Um, how do you, you know, maintain public sector jobs, cut spending, balance the budget, do all of these things? I, I don't think there's been a plan. Uh, admittedly, the 
uh, campaign did not allow itself no. to be policy heavy and well, allow and they for had explanations. A pla- and they already had a platform. But which the platform the Florida City is scrapping. Yes, yes. But the platform's been thrown out the window, yes. so God only knows. Um, he said it will be simpler. For sure. Shorter. Sure. So we'll see. We'll see. What, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, I didn't. Maybe think... you could try a two million jobs plan this time. <laughs> <laughs> and cutting none. Cut no jobs. No. Uh, so I mean, it's a mess. Uh, we'll see how this goes. It certainly provides an opportunity for both Win and the. Uh, uh, Wynn yeah, this and... is kind of exactly. Sorry, the who's who's the other who's the other party <laughs> that's is, running? This is kind of the problem here. Yeah, Andrew Horvath, uh, the NDP leader. Oh yeah, that name rings a bell. Yeah. Oh yeah, or or is it going to be Jagmeet Singh's brother? I can't I can't remember. Is is he the next one? We'll see. In the NDP's embrace of family dynasties, we will see. Uh, because no party seems immune from it. No. Um. All all of that being said, and of course the point everyone's making is that you know Trump is still or not Trump. Jesus. Nice. Ford uh, is still pulling well. Um. He has a very reasonable shot at taking this. Yeah. Um, as do all parties, whether it will be a majority or a minority, I think will be hugely significant. Yeah. Uh, a minority government situation between the three actors that are running today. Yeah, becomes a lot more manageable, I think you could say. For... Manageable how? Well, for the left, I think. Not, <laughs> not as a parliament or not as a legislature. No, it would be certainly chaotic. It would be absolute pure chaos. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I think the best case scenario there for a lot of people would be that uh, it falls apart within a year and a half and all three parties yes. appoint new leadership in that time that or push is, for new leadership, but who knows. Depending on, well, the NDP, I think, so if Win loses, which I think at this point looks like it, there's a very, I mean, look, it looked like there were very good odds of that happening last time. Um, so I think it's fair to say that in Ontario, campaigns matter, and we can't really prognosticate with any degree of confidence what's going to happen. I think Doug Ford on sort of the provincial stage compared to um, Kathleen Wynne and Andrew Horvath, we'll see how voters take to that. I think he can, you know, much like Trump's style was very antagonistic and turned a lot of people off, obviously turned a lot of people on too, um, but... I think we'll see kind of what happens there. I think he has a lot of upside, a lot of downside. Uh, if he sort of is charming and manages to, to convince people that he is, the, you know, well suited to the job, I think he could he could win quite easily. I think he could also crash and burn pretty hard. Um, I think win once again. It, I think there will be a battle for second uh, because right now it's pretty deadlocked between the Liberals and the NDP. Kind of most polls show them both in kind of the low to mid twenties. Um, should one of them take a clear lead, uh, then I think the third one gets kind of blown out of the water because it will become a stop Ford at any any price kind of situation. Yeah, sort of the same dynamic as was going on in the 2015 federal election. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the <clears throat> NDP obviously has... It's really do or die for Andy Horvath. I think she, she sort of under-delivered compared to what a lot of the party expected from her last time. It is sort of funny that a lot of liberals are pointing to... Um, I mean, obviously their own party as the the stop forward party when... Aren't they pulling below the NDP? Uh, some polls show that. Not all, but some. When, um, like I think generally Horvath... Is much better liked, for is, one. I mean, yeah, Wynn's, has higher likability yes. and is more well, palatable than Kathleen Wynne to many voters. Andrew Horvath is the only provincial party leader right now. I don't know if Mike Schreiner does. Apologies to a friend of the show, Mike Schreiner. Uh, but Andrew Horvath is, of the of the big three, the only one with a positive net approval rating. Yeah. Um, you know, the independently of the party. Yeah. I think Wynne's approval is something like 13%, which is like... Francois Hollande level bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the liberals would really have to triangulate the NDP out of second and deeply into third for them to stand a chance. All that said, I think that's certainly a possibility. Uh, like I said, you know, the last election really proved that <laughs> campaigns matter. Uh, and certainly with the sort of personalities on offer and the sort of programs on offer. Uh, I think it really could be anybody's game, or at least 
it will be interesting to see if it's a majority or minority for the PCs. I think they are overwhelmingly likely to win if if Doug Ford does not crash and burn. Yeah. Which is possible. So who knows? <laughs> let's let's put provincial politics to bed. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a sort of analysis of sort of the possible outcomes though yeah i think neither of us are really keen on making very very firm predictions as to what's going to happen nor nor should anyone be in in my opinion i think anyone who presents uh the this is what's going to happen you know has a i mean the statistical likelihood of that happening is fairly high considering there's only so many outcomes yeah um but i mean if you are yeah knows i think it's much easier to predict if you have two sort of very comparable kind of personalities leading relatively comparable kind of parties looking at fundamentals and economics looking at fundamentals and demographics looking at who has the most money those kinds of things can lead you to a pretty good kind of estimate uh in normal circumstances but i think we are in a point where we are yeah it's not normal, I think would be fair to say. Yeah, there's there's yeah. <laughs> a lot of swing potential. There's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. There's huge questions at play. Um, so all that said, uh, speaking of analyzing fundamentals, uh, good segue. We're going to talk about uh, the Strategic Program Review Initiative and their sort of history in government. Uh, just it came to light today, or, you know, it's been mentioned before. Uh, but the Global Mail had a piece about uh, the liberals um, analyzing three programs uh, or three departments, rather. Yeah. They're looking at the Department of Health, Health Canada. They're looking at CBSA, the Canada Board of Services Agency, and CSPS, the Canada School of Public Service. There are three departments that they're sort of zeroing in on to, to, to examine. Call, to call the third one a department might be Yeah, generous, it's actually but... hard to say exactly. Is it an agency? I'm not actually sure. Um, yeah. So at any rate, at any they, they re- sort of talked about the results of, of this so far so CSPS has not been done yet CBSA and health have been completed and they sort of talked about how they were going to invest more money in in these departments um, which is an unusual result for these kinds of exercises I think it's fair to say yes because I mean ostensibly the point of a uh, expenditure review is to find efficiencies yes um, it's to identify which programs are underperforming and it can either be to cut funding from these programs or to roll it into pro- uh, programs that are, you know, delivering results. Yeah. Um, so I, to, to a large extent, that sort of fits well with the mandate the government has given itself of deliverology, yeah. of, you know, finding which things are delivering results and benefits for Canada and bolstering those and to using data and evidence uh, of programs that are underperforming and axing them. And yes. there's certainly tons of them. Yeah, or tweaking even. Or, or tweaking yeah. them or changing them to make them more effective or doing any of these things. Yeah. Because the idea that <coughs> government programs are, you know, perfect as is, is just not plausible. I don't no, think I mean, anyone believes that. And it's the same, like, it's not even just a single, the public sector here. Like, you look at any sort of, like, department in a business you put a fresh set of eyes on that, you're probably going to be able to make some positive suggestions as to how they could be using their budget better or something. Are, are you suggesting we should run government like a business? No. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm just that... I'm just, <laughs> quite the opposite. I'm saying that, you know, every sort of organization has it. You know, we've talked... To, I was going to launch into my terror about this, then I realized I've th- I think I've done it before. Probably. Yeah. Um, but, yes. Sorry. Um, so, all of that is to say, what, what's sort of the results that are highlighted in the Globe Mail piece? So the Globe Journalist uh, messages uh, Bryson, uh, so Treasury Board, Yes. sort of see, okay, you said this was underway. What have you got? What has identified to be cut? So here is what uh, Bryson's press sec said. The departmental reviews examined the governance, the department's governance and 100% of its programming to ensure that the programs are efficient, effective, and aligned with government priorities. While these reviews are yet to be completed, the review of the Canada Border Services Agency has already helped inform the $85.5 million investment announced in Budget 2018. Furthermore, the Health Canada Review helped inform the creation of the Department of Indigenous Services and Budget 2018's $1.5 billion investment in Indigenous Health. Um, So, they haven't quite finished either, from what it sounds like, and they haven't touched CSPS, I guess. Yeah. Or at least they haven't mentioned anything about it. So what you have is basically, um, not, not to run too far with this narrative, although we probably will do that in a few minutes. Yes. Uh, what you basically have is a fairly generic media line where instead of answering the question and saying, you know, these aren't complete, uh, we will provide you more information at a later date, 
the media guy has used it to say, these are not complete, but check out the f- great funding and the new stuff that we're doing. And it isn't that spiffy. Yeah. Which maybe, maybe there was some overlap between the expenditure review they've done and the budget spending. Maybe. But let's say yes, just to be generous. Yeah. Um, but what what this has left is a bad taste in everyone's mouth. That when you're doing an expenditure review and your response is, it has helped us spend more money. It's like, yeah. no, that's not the point. You're missing the point <laughs> of your own exercise. Yeah. We're asking what inefficiencies have you found? And they're saying, we found more places to spend more money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. I was, I was talking to Etienne about this before um, we started recording. Like, in some cases, there really are issues that affect performance that are a matter of not spending money, not spending enough money or not spending it quickly enough. For instance, you look at Indigenous services in the health portfolio. So what happened there was First Nations Inuit Health Branch has traditionally been in Health Canada is getting moved over to the new department, Indigenous services. And, for instance, one of the things that was a real plague and still continues to be, they haven't fixed this yet, but is dental care was a real tough thing to deliver in northern or remote communities because dentists who would fly out there and do services would not get promptly paid by the government, which disincentivized them from doing it. And then you have longer wait times, more problems sort of compound over time because fewer dentists are going up to take care of things and do preventive maintenance. So it, it really is a problem where it could be solved by paying their bills on time, which often is a budget problem because it's a department and a program that's constantly poaching from itself uh, to sort of fill uh, short uh, shortfalls in different parts and kind of just like plugging holes uh, with fingers as as they can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like that's I think there is a legitimate place to say, like, actually, we've done a program of you and we think this needs more money. Uh, it's underfunded and is actually costing more money overall because it is underfunded and not able to meet priorities as they come up. That said, I you know, I, I think anybody, any reasonable person in the world would say they're against wasteful spending. I count myself among that majority. Uh, I think there's obviously programs and, and departments where, you know, even if it's the best designed program in the world 15 years ago, maybe it's substantially addressed the issue it was intended to, to solve. Maybe the community it's intended to serve has different needs. Like, there are a ton of reasons why something that was even a, a very effective, well-designed program upon its creation might no longer be the best use of that dollar. That's like, I think, you know, once again, I think any reasonable observer would agree with that. Uh, There's no reason to keep things that are no longer serving a tangible purpose. Uh, I think obviously there are also programs that were ill-considered or are poorly run. I think like that's also no secret. I think anybody would be happy to concede that. Uh, So I think these are good exercises. Where I have a problem, I think, is when people, and especially, you know, conservative politicians especially have a habit of saying they're going to find efficiencies uh, as a sort of substitute for making any hard choices or any choices at all, really. And I think we talked about this in the context of Doug Ford, but he's not the only one. In fact, liberals do this, too. In the last uh, New Brunswick provincial election, the provincial liberals said they were going to run on a strategic program review to identify efficiencies, whatever, so let's, and fix the problem. Let's talk about this real quick. Sure. Um, because Mike Moffat, a liberal economist extraordinaire, um, made this point on Twitter recently in reference to sort of the PCs running uh, in the Ontario election. And uh, he wrote a piece about, you know, the economics of finding efficiencies mm-hmm. and how many jobs have to be cut and all the rest of this. And so this is one of the challenges of being in opposition, right? Yeah. Is they say, find efficiency. Uh, we're going to find efficiencies. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to find $3 billion. Often these numbers are pulled as a percentage of departmental budgets. Yes. Which is actually not unreasonable. Um, if you look at how uh, conservatives did uh, DRAP and remind me what predated DRAP. Uh, the strategic program review the liberals did. Yeah. Or, yeah. And then, the, so there was strategic program review, there was the conservative version of it, and then there's the next conservative iteration of it, which is DRAP, which is the Deficit Reduction Action uh, Plan. And <laughs> you guys love your action plan. <laughs> Piffy <laughs> title, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and uh, both uh, strategic program review and DRAP were based on a percentage of uh, budgets, between 5 yes. five and 10% there is of cr- departmental budgets. Yeah, and there's a critical difference between the two that you're about to explain, I'm sure. Well, we will in a minute. Okay. Uh, what I want to get to here is when you see Ford's, uh, converse, uh, Ford's statements on this, he said something like, this is a rough paraphrasing, I think the number's right, uh, you know, I can cut 10% from all departments. Yeah. 
you know, this sounds at the same time like a lot and also not a lot, depending on what perspective you have. Um, but the fact of the matter is this has effectively been done or very nearly done at the federal level. Yes. So it, it is not... Critical it is, difference, though. And I'll, okay. One sec. Okay, it, is, it is not inconceivable. Let, let's start with that. The next point I'll say is that when people talk about, um, well, give us a list of what would you cut. Yeah. Uh, and that is always the challenge to politicians. Yeah. I see it uh, very much akin to the, well, you haven't presented a budget. Present a shadow budget. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that opposition parties don't have resources. Yeah. To or the resources or even the access or the information yeah. to go through departments and determine what can be cut. Is Jimmy Jim Bob down there in the communications department who writes the tweets for the minister at a hundred grand a year? Do they even know he, he exists? No. Okay, that's a good point. However, I Woo! think it's not... No, it's fine. It's not unreasonable to say, like, what kinds of cuts would you look at making, right? And I think you'd say, I would look at, for example, sure. communications departments, and maybe sure. there's a bit of bloat there instead Admin- of, like... Administrative program review, yeah, sort sure. of high-level things like this. Yeah, I think Absolutely. that's, like... I think him giving a level of detail, even to that degree, is, like, something we can reasonably expect, and I think... I think voters would not be remiss in wanting to see that kind of at least thought given to this. Sure. Yeah. Because, so one of of the points in Moffat's piece, he sort of does the math and accounts to this being a cut of uh, 40,000 employees. Yeah. And Ford says, um, no employees will be cut. So... That seems implausible to me. It does seem implausible. (laughs) But to follow Ford's logic and to use deduction, this, you know, narrows what, where the efficiencies are going to be found. Okay. Indeed. So to, to follow his logic, they're not going to be found in staffing. They're going to be found in... Well, unless you Presumably sort of ha- well, program spending or capital well, expenditures or something else. What if you sort of got public employees to take the occasional unpaid day off? Whew, that would be a great idea. We, we could call Has them... Has done that before? Call them Ray Days, maybe. <laughs> or uh, what do they call them? Walladays in Saskatchewan Wall when, he, when he did the same thing. Yeah, also another way to cut uh, you know, a substantial amount of money from uh, staffing costs and not lay anyone off. Yeah. This, this I has, mean, it, it sounds totally reasonable when you this, put it like that. But for before. some reason, it's like the worst thing since like you know mass torture when <laughs> you say it in the context of Ontario. I don't know. It's bizarre. But there you go. Um so the point I wanted to make about this is, is you're right. Like the the federal government has done this, uh, and you, to sort of articulate what I was talking about earlier, this sort of difference between the initial stab that the conservatives took at deficit reduction or not deficit reduction, sorry, about at strategic review, strategic review was at reallocation of away from you know quote unquote inefficient programs or you know non-performing programs towards good ones, which like I think is is a really good idea and then they said cut five ten per, or was it five percent five percent yeah so that yeah the, and that punishes efficient departments more than it does inefficient ones yes and i think yeah. this was a lesson learned uh broadly within conservative circles i think there are certainly some um second thoughts about how drop was carried out yeah um so let, let's expand on your point there yeah because i mean if you, if you tell someone <laughs> take a you know, 5% of the fat off this, you know, enormous prime rib roast and 5% of the fat off this chicken breast, you know, you're, you're cutting more of the chicken breast. It's uh, <laughs> 100%. 100%. <laughs> and departments have uh, different mandates and different structures yeah. that allow some to be leaner and some to be fattier. Well, and that this is the point I was coming to, is that the federal government is not nearly in the business of providing direct services to citizens as much as the provinces are. Correct. And that's a huge, huge difference. Because, I mean, like, if you're talking about, like, the Ontario oh. healthcare system when you have people, you know, waiting in, in bathrooms with their hospital beds, like, I'm sorry, but you can't cut 10% out of the Ontario healthcare budget. No, you're right. <laughs> like, you just can't. No, like, it's, you're, you're it's absolutely already right stretched there. to the bone. Um, it is harder, 100%. So within the let, – let's jump back to federal real quick to talk about direct services. Within the federal departments – Yes. Um – like obviously global affairs what you can cut at global affairs when you're when you're looking at drap a couple big brains that you told something else some <laughs> program spending staffing costs things yeah. along those lines when it comes to um veterans affairs yeah. 
I mean, there's the staffing costs at VAC are actually pretty lean. Um, I mean, one of the things you saw come out of DRAP was the idea to, bear with me because I'm going to say the evil word, close veterans offices. Um, but it wasn't so much close them as roll them into uh, Service Canada locations. Yeah. It was trying to find efficiencies there. And yes. that's sort of one of the areas in a service delivery department yeah. that they did for this. Um, there, were, there were other ways that they tried to find efficiencies yeah. across all of government. And I will say going back further, and this is my point precisely, is that like when you are delivering services, it's much harder to do this. When the Liberals did this in the late 90s, um, they introduced like the 2% spending cap on Indigenous like post-secondary education and primary education, which led to actually like a horrific long-term gap between them and like provi- comparable provincial services. So it like it really does matter at the service delivery level when you do do this. Like it's it seems to just be cutting for the sake of cutting, and I think like at that point it actually really does more harm than anything else. When you have a cut mandate, I think the reallocation mandate or even just like a review mandate where you have the option to say thing like spending levels are fine, but we're going to like tweak programs to do whatever. Like so, yeah, the the cut mandate. I mean, I think it's. I think we um, both agree that that's probably a misguided way of doing things. Not, <laughs> not entirely. Not entirely. <laughs> not entirely. I think I think the the hard line five percent across the board or ten percent across the board in every single department is wrong. Sure. I think it needs to be more flexible and more responsive. Like I not think, in service delivery. Departments. I think part of the um, the problems with DRAP um, came out when you when you talk to civil servants now and they talk about how DRAP was implemented. Um, you'll hear. You know, tons of different stories um, ranging from um, gross mismanagement within the departments of I've heard stories of uh, senior civil servants putting forward their best programs to be cut as sort of a chicken thing Uh, to say that, like, these are the only things we could find to cut, cut yeah. nothing from our budgets because you can't cut this. I have a great story about that. So you, you sort of imagine the incentives, and this is sort of where it trickles down to the public service, and you have to look at the incentives that are created. Yes. Um, these incentives uh, around DRAP and around some of the like shared services Canada and some of the government's uh, measures resulted in really perverse incentives. Yeah. And so if you have, let, let me just paint out the structure a little more. You have the deputy minister. Mm-hmm. The deputy minister turns to his uh, his associate deputy and his ADMs, and he says, "Guys, we need to find uh, five to ten percent to cut from our department. Everyone, yeah. present me with uh, some things that you think can be cut. Like, what, what's your top list of things?" And it's going to be the other guy's thing. <laughs> yeah, and you're the ADM who yeah. comes back with all of oh. I mean, it's, it's... Actually, the stuff I supervise is not that great. It's like, the saving stuff from puppy dog, or it's uh, rescuing dogs from trees. Like, it, we possibly couldn't cut anything from my department. Yeah. I'm sure you could find something in Scott over across the tables department. Paying people to, to give, dig holes and fill them in again. To give another example of sort of how this went with shared the creation of Sur- Shared Service Canada, so the story goes, is that... So Shared Services Canada, to run through it super quickly... Is sort of the it was supposed to be a cost saving measure. It was harmonizing this will all sound very well, similar to those too. harmonizing and centralizing the government's IT systems yeah. because apparently a lot of them were an absolute mess and they were being run a billion different ways and it, and it made a lot of sense. But when they were actually implementing it, again, when you're trying to staff up this department and the the people running shared services turn to the, all the government departments and say, "Hey, send us five staff members from each area that you have uh, so that we can staff up." Who gets sent? The worst ones. The <laughs> worst ones. <laughs> this is not to insult the people currently working at Shared Services Canada, but there was certainly a lot of problems, uh, both with uh, any time the government does one of these creation of new bodies. The, uh, with Phoenix, it was the same way. It's you're not. Are you getting the right composition of staff? And yeah. There's really perverse incentives created across the board, and it makes these things yeah. very, well, very I mean, complicated if, you look at if they're any, not poorly, if yeah. they're not well run. If you look at any compared comparable organization, like n- very few things, large like administrative structures that have to interlock seamlessly with many, many others, are built this way basically overnight from the ground up. Like that's extremely rare. Usually, what you see in the private sector is the sort of slow growth of things, and then you know acquisitions, mergers, cuts here and there. But there's typically a structure that sort of pertains and the growth tends to be kind of organic. You're not just going to like 
manufacture an enormous department overnight that suddenly has the job of like overseeing everyone's IT yeah. services. That's like a absolute ludicrous project in the context of the private sector because like you don't have the same kinds of incentives, you don't have the same kind of management structure. It's just fundamentally different. Yeah. Like it's not to say that it's better or worse, it's just really different. Yeah, Apple is not creating a new branch. Okay, all the iPhone guys you're now in the building across the street. We need to staff this entire building. Like yeah. that just doesn't happen. No. It's it's more of an organic growth sort of thing. Yeah, or at least slower paced. At yeah. any rate, it's the sort. Of, yeah, uh, there's more time to iterate. But when you do have to like centralize these things, it's like, yeah, typically there's uh, there's some friction there. A lot of friction, as we've seen with both shared services and Phoenix. <laughs> A lot friction of friction. Friction is perhaps mild there, even yes. Um, yeah. Any other points you want to make about strategic point? Oh, actually, there's one thing. Uh, the third thing they were going to look at, which was the Canada School of Public Service. It's actually worth a quick Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, no, it 100% is because, I mean, I have a very poor opinion of it as an institution. I, yes. I think this is not uncommon. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about Donald sure. Savoie's take so on it? The, the great scholar of Canadian public administration. You know, uh, tweeting four blurry photos I is know, terrible I know, I know, I know, I know. I should have all done it in one set of four blurry pictures instead of four tweets. Um... Anyway, Donald Savoie, who is kind of like the really like the grandmaster of Canadian public administration <sighs> academics, uh, actually has informed the creation of two government agencies and departments over the course of, of his career in and out of the public service. The first was the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. ACOA. ACOA, which he's actually not keen on uh, for several <laughs> reasons. And the second was uh, the Canada School of Public Service, which started as the Canadian Management... Uh, it was a shorter title or a different title that focused more on training than as a school. And uh, surprise, surprise, he's also not fond of how this has turned out. And as you pointed out, uh, when he when they started it, uh, there were, as he said, there was a lot of pressure to keep the people on or like take people from. It's basically like where people set people send underperforming executives or like mid level managers to go teach. Um, you know, those who can't do teach. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so it's uh, – sorry to teachers. You guys do a great job. Um, you, you guys are, are great. But, yeah, so this is what's happened sort of with the, the CSPS is that it's kind of become a sort of clearing or a storing house, warehouse for middling managers and executives that no one is really quite sure what to do with. Um, you can't fire them. And um, what, what's hysterical is – Yeah, and, like, the idea with, with the original sort of incarnation of this was that it would produce research, really be like a research center and training center. And currently it has the budget of a sort of mid-sized research university in terms of personnel. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to do the, like, student life aspects of it. So that's, that's you know, a big chunk off the budget right there. But in terms of staffing, like, they have a lot of budget to pay people to do things. Um and they produce almost no research, right? Which is a shame because there there isn't that much Canadian public administration research done. And I think it would actually be really good if the public service had a more, like a critical lens inside of itself to sort of look around and that was, you know, respected and seen as impartial and, you know, committed to good research practice and to do these things. And I think it's a really a missed opportunity. But at any rate, uh, what he says is you have people who are paid basically at half time, um, like 80 grand a year, like retirees from the public service who come in and do consulting. This is not unusual in the public service, but it's particularly egregious in this case. Uh, and he's like, does that really, like, is that really the best possible use of that money? And, like, I think... Well, he, he also talks about how uh, professors at comparable universities, instead of being paid 80 grand for half-time work, are paid, like, five grand a course. And... Yeah, who are, like, retirees who come yeah. in and teach and a course. Yeah, these people are doing that. two courses. Yeah, Like, exactly. they're not doing... Yes. 80 grand's worth of courses, which would be... Yeah, and he talks about sort of how, like, the weaknesses of, like, the self-audit structure, um, which seems to be, you know, kind of pervasive. Um, and, yeah, I think it, it is worth sort of taking an outside eye and, and looking at these things and saying, like, how much... And the, actually, the government does, you know, we've got the Auditor General. We also have internal program audits that regularly do audits of programs that tend to be quite critical, actually. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's no reason we shouldn't be doing this a bit more actively. So one thing to note here is that, uh, sort of to harmonize this to a point uh, that we skipped over earlier, is that when we're talking about strategic review under the Conservatives, under, well, also Chrétien and Paul Martin, um, but then uh, DRAP, this was basically a whole of government. Not not entirely, but pretty close. I think in uh, somewhere along the lines of 60 to 70 departments were implicated in them. The Liberals are looking at 
three. Yeah. And not even three departments. Yeah, because like... Two so, departments yeah. and... Well, it's like a department, an agency, and like a sort of quasi-agency. Yeah. Yeah. It seems underwhelming. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And well, first of all, they're almost three years into their mandate. Yes. We haven't seen anything out of this expenditure review. No. Uh, unless, you know, there's a huge overhaul in year four and suddenly we're cutting, you know, a couple million dollars. Well, not even a couple million. I'd hope it'd be more than that considering uh, when you're looking at expenditure reviews, typically you're looking at either cutting or reallocating in the yeah. billions of dollars yeah. um, of properly done ones. Um, it's going to come up with, what, $5 million in savings, which probably doesn't even cover the... The cost of actually doing the, the full, program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh! Yeah, it's pretty... I mean, like, if I were them and I was, like, taking this economic development and innovation stuff seriously, I would be looking at programs to support post-secondary education and how they're doing that. And is the federal role adequate? Is there too much? Is it wrongly placed? Uh, I would be looking at economic development, which I think they are consolidating those programs. But I'd be more—I'd be curious to see what the sort of lens going into that is. And uh, these are places where that I think could could be good. But... I, I have a laundry list of CBC radio programs. I would, I would <laughs> I like will to die, see. Cut. I will die on the hill of this is that again. This is that. I will, needs I will to be die cut. on that hill. You know, I'm done with tapestry. Yeah, I'm fine. Tapestry. You can go ahead and take that. But uh, this is Sunday, that. I will Sunday die night on. blues. I'm, I'm oh, sorry. You're too. off too. Oh, damn, that's a good one. I've got a law. Lo- I've got a laundry list of CBC shows I never want to hear again. The NPR equivalent of that was really good. Um, weekend blues it's great no it's want... three days instead of one it's great uh okay before we get too off track there with our, our favorite and least favorite radio programs um there's a federal story last week that kind of happened that we didn't talk about because it sort of happened in the context of the budget and a very busy week more generally uh but it was the block quebecois more or less imploding yeah yeah and if you're from outside of Quebec slash Ontario, you probably have no idea this happened. No, yeah, it, it was not. I mean, it's been covered, but not very much, which I think is probably fair given its like importance. Really, it's, the the block is really seeming to die with a whimper uh, at this point. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening, but things do not look great. So what happened was Martine Wallet, who is the current leader of the block, uh, she sits in Quebec City. Yeah. So as an MNA. Yes. Member of the National Assembly in the Quebec Legislature. She is not a federally elected politician. And if, is, is not even Trying a to not elected politician. She's well, yeah. actively a, a active member of a provincial legislature. <laughs> yes. Um, and seven of her MPs quit, saying they didn't have confidence in her leadership. And they formed the Groupe Parlementaire Québécois. Which translates to? The Quebec Parliamentary Group. Woo! It's pretty, pretty easy. Um, so there are three of them left. What? Wait, not confidence in her leadership. What is what is the reported reason why they left? I think it was confidence in leadership, wasn't it? It's because she's mean. Because they hate her. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think is like the subtext of it is not that you know they're worried she's not a strong leader. I think it's sort of it's a horrible dynamic. Well, between... I mean that's to me like the same thing. I just want to be a little more clear. Let's put it this way. It's Someone... not they think she's. A... It's someone you don't you not you don't want to work for anymore. Basically, right? Yeah. And like, there, there's probably a whole lot of reasons going into that, but that's. I just wanted to be a little more clear on okay. confidence and leadership. What sure. specifically it was? And, and she's had issues with the caucus before. Uh, she had one notably, I think, last kind of May June, um, where you know they they had this like closed door session where, where they all yelled at each other a whole bunch. So her her leadership has been pretty stormy so far. The block has really kind of foundered since 2011 when you know, the NDP just like really took the wind out of their sails to a very considerable degree. Gilles Duceppe resigned as leader. Uh, Mario Beaulieu, who is one of the three MPs who stayed behind, uh, took over, but then actually resigned and let Gilles Duceppe come in again before the 2015 election. Gilles Duceppe resigned after that one. Uh, and then Maxine was elected. And since then it's kind of been listing crazily towards the rocks uh, to continue the sailing metaphor. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it really hasn't been great, and they haven't been able to sort of find their feet since 2011 in any meaningful way, really. Uh, like the Parti Québécois, its demographics are becoming older, more rural, more hardline, uh, less left-wing, notably. Um, the PQ and the Bloc both used to be pretty left-wing parties. Um, Giuseppe himself was sort of like, you know, if you look at pictures of him in the 70s, he has the haircut, of a of a you know of a leftist and he had the convictions to match. So I mean, this of course is one of the interesting sort of dynamics with both PQ and the Bloc is that they harbor both left and right wing. Like they're yeah. sort of equally progressive. 
Well, de- depending on leadership. Yeah. But they can be... They can basically uh, flip a switch and go from progressive conservative levels of conservatism mm-hmm. to NDP levels of socialism. Well, it's very worth looking at... Yeah, like, specifically, like, if you look at, like, the 80s to the, the sort of 2000s of, of when the PQ was, you know, in power more often, René Lévesque was your sort of very conventional social democrat uh, who would have been very comfortable as an NDP premier. Uh, and then you had, uh, well, to... Aside from the short interregnum after Levesque's resignation, um, Lucien Bouchard, who was a federal PC, you had Jacques Parizeau, sorry, first actually, who was once again a, a sort of left Jacobin, uh, you know, very, very centralist kind of uh, center left politician. PKP, most recently. PKP, who was the sort of Pierre pretty right wing. Carl Pelado. Yeah, and actually, funny thing about Pierre Carl Pelado, the, the cave in the Carl, he changed in university after Karl Marx. Really? Not kidding, yeah. That's a real, real story. He, he changed it to Mir, Carl? Well, yeah, because it was Pierre Carl with the C. And then he... What, then what he happened? He just no, but, the no but I mean to his political beliefs post-university. Oh, what happened? Well, because he inherited he's... the company, I guess. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> In university, you're a socialist or you're yeah. a Marxist. And then when you're a media billionaire, you become conservative again. Go figure, yeah. <laughs> okay. Wouldn't be the first time. Um, so... Yeah. Wait, they, are you going to tell me that our, our Lord was once a Marxist? No, not him. Oh. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, yeah, it's 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 certainly a, a party that's that's been drawn in many different directions by by sort of different currents in its history. I think the the what's left of the BQ and PQ are not terribly left wing. The Martin Willette is actually herself fairly left wing. Her caucus, I think, is kind of split. You have a lot of pretty rural PC style. Uh, MPs in there as well as some more suburban closer to Montreal and in Montreal traditional left wing kind of folks I feel like when I watch them on uh, question period the like every other time when they get a question yeah uh, I mean this is sort of just the nature of the role the niche that they fill is that I, I feel like I get the sense that they're very left wing watching them because their questions are always about government funding for Quebec yeah like that is basically the only thing they ever ask about yeah what about this program? What about more money here? What about this ship? They were like, very big on uh, the Saudi arms deal as well. Okay, yeah, there have been a couple progressive issues that they've pushed Though once on. again, when I think about the ad they ran last time showing the, the pipeline leaking a niqab out of it, uh, <laughs> I perhaps think this isn't necessarily in the best faith ever, but eh, there I, you go. I suspect <laughs> that they're just concerned that the arms we're sending to Saudi Arabia are not Bombardier produced. That is and, also possible. And if they were Bombardier produced, I'm sure they would be the number one booster of it. It's, it's possible. Um, yeah. It, and hopefully the, the Saudis haven't lost theirs, I guess, before they finish paying them back. In reference to the plane. Oh, no. I was, oh, yeah. I was, I mentally zoned out because I was contemplating whether or not Bombardier could reasonably produce light armored vehicles. I mean, they'd be. Like, train several... cars, light armored vehicles. They can't be that different. They'd be several years late and over budget, but <laughs> yeah. maybe. Um, yeah, so that's that's going on with the block. We'll see how kind of how that shakes out. It doesn't look super good for them so far. Uh, the the block has made it clear that they will not be expelled from the party and are welcome to come back anytime. Um, if they bend the knee. Yes, which I think is perhaps a... There has been talk of a referendum on her leadership being done, but it is sort of, it's worth pointing out that when 7 out of 10 of your MPs leave... Uh, your party's basically gone. At that point, it's yes. fallen to pieces. Maybe they're better off without you. Um, I know someone somewhere would advocate for a parliamentary system where members of caucus select their leader, which would you know resolve this whole situation seamlessly. Yeah, and they would be able to have the bloodless coup. Um, without polling leadership, but here we are. We, we do should, not live in that world. We should talk about that sometime and the sort of advantages, disadvantages of those two two ideas. At any rate, uh, there was also a, a brief a trip this week from uh, the King and Queen of the Belgians, as is their proper style, Yes, are, are in Canada visiting. Uh, there was a wrong flag up at tied to a tree at Rideau Hall wasn't even like a real flag it got everyone mad some Belgian guy went on TV and was like how dare you disrespect my country um, which was okay alright uh, he, he, like, he was like I'm journal. not sure Canadians are taking this visit seriously and it's like no no one knows what's going on except for us because we're huge nerds and live here um, on the Belgian visit okay 
So, yes, there was a protocol error with a German flag instead of a uh, Belgian flag. Bit of a whoopsie doodle. Not a big deal, really, at the end of the day. Not the biggest of deals. It is not in any way indicative of anything about the government. It is a singular error by a protocol officer, either with the governor general yes, who or... Who has probably already committed seppuku, so there's no <laughs> point going after him. <laughs> or um, Depar- or Glo- Department of Global Affairs. Um, the other issue that this journalist and sort of the Belgian coalition... It's not just the king and queen, it's uh, 150 people. It's almost like they're the Trudeau team going to a climate conference. They brought yeah. over, like, literally everyone. Um, that none of them met with Trudeau. Instead, they got to meet with three ministers. Pretty mediocre lineup of ministers, to be honest. Yeah. Um, they got to meet... Um, I guess Trudeau really felt the need to snub someone after the India trip. Just, like, just, you know, <laughs> to give it right back. <laughs> Who is below me on the totem pole? Oh, yeah, yes, exactly. The king, the Belgians! King, Let's the king kick and, them while they're down. The king and queen are coming. Yeah. Trudeau was actually supposed to be in Florida on vacation, apparently. Yeah, I think he figured be- probably... Because... He needed another vacation. You know he was going um, to Disney World to take some <laughs> obnoxious pictures. He shows up at Disney World wearing like a Mickey Mouse bow tie. Oh, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> I've dressed like the locals. Yeah. Um, Dropping anti-Semitic slurs to fit in with Walt Disney. With Walt. Yeah. Um, but no, instead um, he is uh, doing a tour around Quebec and some other places of steel mills in response to the steel tariffs. I mean, sounds smarter than a fortification. Um, but... Doubling down on that, he had a phone call with Trump. He's sort of, you know, staying in the office because, of course, it is a parliamentary break week, so going out of the region of those impacted by the events in the news is always a good look. Indeed. Um, the Belgians remain upset that he has not made any time for them. Um, oh, I was going to say that, yeah, they met with uh, François-Philippe Champagne. Um... They met with Scott Bryson, who wants to meet the president of the Treasury Board when you're a foreign official. Is not like Bryson, important guy, I nice mean, guy, just not interesting from a foreign perspective. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is uh, Oregon. Yeah. That's a weird choice. Veterans Affairs. To be honest, not less so. There's always the World War One tie-in, but still, when you're meeting with World War One, World War Two. Any military conflicts? Yeah, but send the senior guy. Who's this? Harjit Sajan. Oh. Yeah. It's actually not unusual for the Veterans Affairs Minister to be involved in a lot of these things. Um, But suffice it to say, no Freeland, no Trudeau. Not even I said. Yeah. Um, Which would have been like, oh, you know, like business ties between blah, 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 innovation would have been. Or science even. They brought yeah. over a universe. Like, yeah, it's pretty, weird. Yeah. Pretty meager welcome. Um, I would note that the king and queen of Belgium are in fact going to Montreal tomorrow or the next day to, uh, I guess, like witness or give their presence to the signing of some uh memora like letters of offer or letters of distribution for Belgian beers into Quebec. Oh okay. Including Duchess de Bourguignon. Oh Duchesse de Bourgogne. I, I was getting there. And you uh, want to say like Bef Bourguignon every time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and Delirium Tremens. That's a good one, yes. Uh so that's one of the things they're doing while in town. Who knew that you needed the king and queen to oversee alcohol distribution contracts. That but... sounds even worse than the L C B O <laughs> it just seems so ridiculous and over the top, but uh, here yeah. we are. Yeah, you know, gotta give him something to do. Anyway, uh, that will do it for us this week, except for noting that Brad Trost lost his nomination to uh, sitting Saskatchewan Speaker of the Legislature, Cory Tucker. Are you very happy about that? Uh, yeah, I am. Apparently, it was by twenty-eight votes. Oh wow, well, is what good. Trost said, something along those lines. Good, good for good for Cory. Um, also, that will be good because he actually is pretty well liked in his constituency, and will make that easier to win in 20, uh, 2019 for or twenty twenty for the NDP. So, uh, along with yeah. that good no- good news, I would note uh, in terms of nomination battle- battles, this isn't very recent, but Cheryl Gallant won hers. Woo! That's like not recent at all. It's like months ago. <sighs> I know, but I think we've already mentioned that. No, we haven't. Really? It's okay, on the, it's on the same topic though. Okay, Cheryl Gallant. Cheryl Gallant. Cheryl Gallant. Cheryl Gallant. Of, um, I think I recognize her from the Gallant News Network. Indeed, yes. She's she's uh, one of the, the anchors there. <laughs> um, so, beer review for the week. Uh, we had Le Saint... What is that? Le Saint d'Ancre. So, it's uh, the... Um, 
the blood of ink. Inky blood. The inky blood. The inky blood. And it's a sort of kraken of sorts on the uh, on the label. Strangling voyagers. That's from Trou du Diable in Shawinigan. Uh, it's pretty good. I think you you were a little underwhelmed. I mean, it's good, but not great. I would say kind of a thin, not that flavorful stout. So, quick backstory: Trudziab is one of sort of the older and more well-respected uh, microbreweries in Quebec. It's based out of Schwinnigan. They infamously have the Schwinnigan Handshake as one of their beers with yes. a picture of Katia uh, mangling a man yeah. on the front. Um, they were actually recently bought by one of the big brewers, so they're sort of the subject of controversy there. The sort uh. of astroturfing of microbrewery. Um, yeah, I've had only a few of their beers ever. This one was supremely mediocre, but the bottle art is on point. So. I mean, it's good. It's just not great. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't even say it's mediocre. It's good. It's just not great. I could go across the street and buy a better stout from my local grocer, so that's... That is true. That's sort of where my threshold is. That is admittedly true. Okay, well, I think that'll that'll do it for us this week, just crossing the one-hour threshold. Oh. Uh, sorry, yeah, you got you went into the, the background on the brewery, and, oh. that, was that, and that was that. You, my Achilles identi- heel. Identify these, uh, these inefficiencies. Um, yeah, that'll do it. You can follow us at uh, Short Pants Pod on Twitter. Uh, it's worth a follow because you can't tell who's tweeting, uh, which is always fun. People get mad. It's usually Laurent. It's usually me. Um, and otherwise, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.